And you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. I know it's been a while since we've been in Luke, taken a, a month of a break from this gospel. So I'll just briefly remind you a little bit of where we left off. In, in chapter 8, Jesus told several parables about the kingdom of God. And, um, and since then, he's gone on to do many miracles which reveal the presence of the kingdom of God, that he has ushered in the kingdom of God in his first coming. And so in our passage this afternoon, Jesus is further revealing aspects of the kingdom that have come through his ministry. We, we, just, we continue to build upon our understanding of who Jesus is and his, um, and his ushering in the kingdom. So Luke places this particular pericope, Jesus feeding the 5,000, bet- it's clearly on its own. It's, it's a passage, pericope just means passage. It's a, it's a passage that is set apart um, uh, by, the, by the, the circumstances, right? I mean, it's very clearly an event in its own right, but, but the place Luke positions it is in between two reactions to Jesus by significant individuals, right? You have Herod's reaction, really a, a very superficial reaction to Jesus in verses 7 through 9. And then after this passage, you'll have Peter's confession, which is an accurate, of course, confession that Jesus is the Christ of God. So the readers of, the, of this gospel throughout history might consider this section here calling us to put ourselves in that position. How will we respond? Who is Jesus? Will we respond in a superficial or a spiritual manner? Almost like what... It, in fact, it could be a play or a reflection of us being like the crowd, which you, in fact, don't hear or don't see anything about what the crowd does or how they respond to this miracle. You know the miracle takes place, that Jesus feeds the 5,000, but there's no mention of what the crowd does in response to that. So it's sort of leaving that option for us to then put ourselves there and to say, how will we respond to this? Will we receive him as our king? Will we submit to him? as, our, as the, the true Messiah, or will we continue to, to have a superficial view of Christ? So before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this passage and this, this miracle that is quite common that we've heard about, and it, the fact that it's contained in all four of the Gospels, um, it is something that, that is a significant miracle described, and, and we want to understand it even better, not to just gloss over it because we're familiar with the passage, but to really, truly apply it to our lives. The Lord, convict us if we need to be convicted. Comfort us by the truth of the gospel and help us to respond appropriately to this passage, that we would be filled with a love and a compassion for our neighbors. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, read with me Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 17. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging. And get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. 
They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Amen. This is God's holy word. So we can see sort of three sections here in this passage. Verses 10 through 11, Jesus shows mercy to the crowd. Once again, he has compassion upon those who are needy. Jesus is then testing the disciples in verses 12 through 14. Um, John gives us the language that this was a test, that he, he asked them how, you know, if, how they can feed, basically, the, the crowd, right? The disciples ask him to go, and he says, you feed them. He knows exactly how he's going to do this, but he's wondering where, where his disciples are on this. Are, are they trusting in him? And then thirdly, you have verses 14 through 17. Jesus provides food for all of them. So beginning with the, the compassion of Christ, verses 10 and 11, um, let me just kind of give you the context here of where this is taking place. John tells us that this was at the time of the Passover. So it's mid-April, A.D. 29, roughly. This, is, um, this miracle likely took place near the Aish Harbor, A-I-S-H, Aish Harbor, which is located at the very northern tip of Galilee. If you have a map in the back, you can, you can find the Sea of Galilee and, and just basically right in the, at the top to the northeast corner of that section, you would find the harbor of Aish. Um, and so it's there between Capernaum on the uh, west and then on the east is Bethsaida. Right? So they're traveling to Bethsaida. They, they, they harbor more than likely at that Aish harbor. You know, the, because of the terrain and because of the, the presence of a, of a harbor that has been excavated there, that's where they believe the boat stopped. Right? We can talk about them going by boat, but that, that is what they've done. And they then traveled, they begin their travel to Bethsaida. Now, we don't think they actually got all the way into the city because it says they're in a desolate place, right? They say, we're out here in the wilderness, basically. So how are we going to care for these? These people need to get into the city. We need to give them time to transfer, you know, get to the city and find some lodging and some provisions for food. Okay, so it's nearing the afternoon at this point. Um, the, the harbor itself is about nine miles west of the Jordan River. So this was, you know, possibly, a, a, depending on how far out of Bethsaida they're still, they still are, um, this would, would have taken some time for them to get to the city proper. Um, this is the only miracle, other than the resurrection, that's recorded in all four Gospels. And so the greatness of this, this crowd that's gathering re- reflects something of the fame of Jesus, you know, his popularity is beginning to spread. And the first principle of, uh, to kind of take away from this passage in verse 10 is, is that they needed to withdraw. Took them, the, the apostles have returned from, from when he sent them out at the beginning of the chapter, 
They've now finished that mission, and then they've returned, and Jesus takes them to withdraw apart to a place called Bethsaida. So the first principle is taking some time to get away, and yet that's quickly followed in verse 11 by this show of compassion. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he, wel- and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. So it's kind of like he's acknowledging the fact that, that we all need rest. We all need periods of, of time to recuperate and to be refreshed. And yet we see his compassion for the crowd, his compassion for the needy, even outweighed his, his need for physical recuperation and rest. So he, he welcomed them, he spoke to them, and then he cured the sick that were among them. So Jesus' welcoming and healing uh, compassion reveal the mercy of God. You'll see this again in, in Luke 15, 20. This idea of the compassion of God that is reflected in, uh, in Christ. You have... And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. It's the prodigal son, right? And the father representing God and that compassion he has for his children. So he calls as well his follow. This, this compassion of God shows uh, or calls followers to show that same kind of mercy and compassion. Luke chapter 10, verses 36 through 37, we read, which of, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Another parable, you're very familiar with the Good Samaritan. What was the principle? You go and show this kind of mercy and kindness. So we should always be looking beyond our own personal needs. And even, even when we feel exhausted, maybe especially when we feel exhausted, right? there's, this, there's opportunities to serve and to bless others all around us. Um, I think Christianity is too often associated with this personal private religion, private faith. Right? You kind of keep it to yourselves. You do what you, you need to do. You do what you do. I'll do what I do. And, and it goes against everything we see here in the ministry of Christ, where it was very much a gathering, a community, and an inviting in of those even outside of that community so that they might even receive some of that mercy and compassion, right? And an invitation to join. So we should always be looking beyond our own personal needs here and to welcome the crowds and to serve them in the strength and power that only Christ can provide. It's like when we're exhausted, that's... Who else can we look to but to Christ to provide the strength in order to serve others? The compassion of Christ invites us to lean on his strength, and especially when we we want to be isolated. So how would the disciples respond? At this point, you can imagine they've come back from this. They've all come back from a long journey. They've just met with Jesus, and he says, let's go to an isolated place. And Jesus himself is exhausted, they're probably thinking, let's send this crowd away from the beginning, right? And yet we see that they, sh- they too show a concern, a Christ-like concern for them. I think initially when I read their reaction, 
I thought that they were showing a lack of compassion, sort of wanting to just get rid of the crowd. Let's send them away. Get them, get them to the city so that we can finally get our rest. But there's really no reason to impugn their motives. There's nothing in the text that says that they, that they had ulterior or negative motives here. They simply were concerned. They knew it was late in the afternoon. Right? They're far away. They're in the wilderness. They're desolate. Are, are you expecting all of these people to be fed and, and housed um, without, you know, in this area? But all of the reminders that we see, all of the, the um, details of this episode, this passage, do remind us of, of occurrences in the Old Testament. Right? You have the same situation uh, for the wilderness generation in Exodus chapter 16, 1 through 3. There the Israelites were grumbling and God provides manna and quail for them. Right? So this is, again, this is where the test comes in. Will they trust Jesus to provide for them? Will they trust in him? He's the bread of life, and he's about to do something miraculous, as John would say. John follows this very passage up with the bread of life discourse in John 6. And so there's a connection even here with the, the practice of the, of the Lord's Supper. We'll see that in a moment. But Jesus tells his disciples to give the, the crowd something to eat, which obviously was something they were incapable of doing in and of themselves. And I love what Alexander McLaren says. He says, it is often our duty to attempt tasks to which we are conspicuously inadequate in the confidence that he who gives them has laid them on us to drive us to himself and there to find sufficiency. The best preparation of his servants for their work in the world is the discovery that their own stores are small. That we ourselves have a very low supply to give. So we must trust in our Savior to give us the strength and the provision to provide. So much like sending out the 12, Jesus, again, is now inviting these apostles to participate in this kingdom mission. And we learn that Jesus provides the means for his disciples to obey all that he commands them to do. Right? He, doesn't command the, he does command them to do something that they can't do, but when they trust in him, he can accomplish that work through them. And he does use them. Right? They're the ones gathering up the, the pieces of bread. They're the ones distributing the, the bread and the fish throughout it. So the concern of the disciples is, is mixed here with good intentions, right? They are concerned about the crowd, and yet they lack an understanding of Jesus' capabilities. Or at least they're, they're, not, they're not looking for him to provide in that way. They're not trusting. They're not expecting it. So Darrell Box says, the disciples need to see that they can accomplish things they never dreamed of doing through their association with Jesus. We should be thinking outside of the box when it comes to kingdom mission, when it comes to kingdom ministry. There are some ways that we can show God's mercy to our neighbors. And think about that. That's the, one, of the, one of the application points here is that we would take away from this a, a desire to show mercy in ways that we currently don't have the resources to do. How can God use us in this church or in our community, in our neighborhood? How can he use us to show the kind of compassion that we see in this passage to a needy world? Well, again, Jesus provides in this last section, we have the provision of Christ. When the 12 were, were ready to send everyone away, Jesus miraculously feeds them all with five loaves and two fish. 
And John points out that Andrew got the bread and fish from a young boy. You read that in John 6, verses 8 through 9. And Matthew informs us that the 5,000 does not include the women and children. So even at a conservative estimate, this is 10,000 people on this, in this area. And this miracle really upsets a liberal understanding of Scripture, right? The, the liberal in the 19th century had fits with this passage because all of the Gospels are consistent in their presentation of this miracle. There's no way of explaining it away, and yet some of them tried to do that, right? It's not easy to explain this miracle in a, natu- a natural fashion when, when, they're all in a, when all the witnesses and the accounts we have are in agreement about what happened. But liberals had denied the virgin birth. Right? They had denied atoning death of Christ. They had denied the resurrection of Christ. And so this too must be explained in a nat- natural or at least a figurative fashion that it didn't actually take place. One proposal was that behind Jesus, there was this cave full of bread and fish. And, and when, when the crowd wasn't looking, he was grabbing from there and throwing it, throwing it on the baskets. Now, that's one, present, one idea that was proposed. Another one took a figurative approach, right? That um, it suggested that many in the crowd had food. They had brought belongings. They were prepared for this. And yet when they saw this boy provide his whole lunch to share with others, they all became generous and compassionate as well, and they shared with one another. So Sproul quips, he says, therefore, the real miracle here was not a supernatural event in space and time. It was an ethical miracle. Jesus had everybody share their lunch. Obviously, he's, he was being, he's being facetious there. Um, aside from the fact that this would have negated the disciples' concern in the first place, that there's plenty of food. Why are they worried about that? Um, it's also an explanation that suggests that, that is suggested by none of the four accounts, right? There's, there's nothing that would suggest this was not a, a miraculous provision by God. So rather than trying to, to move us to natural compassion, this text is calling us to something much greater. It is calling us to look beyond natural possibilities. Do we trust the supernatural power of Christ to work in and through us as we attempt to do things that are beyond our natural abilities? And it should be inspiring for us. It should help us to, to, to take risks, trusting that he will continue to, to do his kingdom work through us. So, one commentator said, we aren't even allowed the frequent fallback position, which sounds good, but avoids the issue. Some would say the real miracle was in people's hearts. And, that, and, and that's kind of how we, we take some things at, at times, right? We say, well, it was, it's really what Jesus did in their, their hearts. And, and there's nothing wrong with that, right? This is true. That is a, a miracle in itself. And yet this was a supernatural event. that takes place in a very physical way, God providing an abundance of food from a very small portion. So Christians who intend to make the gospel story their own are are living a venture of faith from first to last. 
So this miracle is, is a, a much larger version of Elisha's feeding of 100 men with 20 loaves. You can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42 through 44. There are several parallels in this passage. With, with that passage, Elisha tells his servants to feed, or his servant to feed 100 men. His servant's name was Gehazi. He says, go feed the men with the 20 loaves of bread that they had just received. And Gehazi objects that there isn't enough food. How am I going to accomplish this work? And Elisha responds by saying, give them to the men that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So they'll have leftovers. Gehazi obeyed and the men ate and had some left. So Jesus here, what is he saying by doing something similar, but only on a magnified sense? He is accomplishing the miraculous deeds of the prophets in a way that shows his superiority to everyone who preceded him. Right? He is our final. He is the true prophet that every prophet pointed to, the true priest that every priest pointed to, the true king that every king pointed to. Even though we fully accept the miracle as, su- as supernatural right, and as physically taking place, we do still see symbolism here. There is a symbolic lesson for us, and Leon Morris points out that John references this as a sign. He calls it a sign. And so that should be taken with full seriousness. The meal brought home the truth that God in Christ can supply any need. And so we don't minimize the miracle to make that that point of application. We're called to, to care for one another and to trust that God can provide for everything, everyone. The 12 baskets that are left over may symbolize Christ's ongoing sustaining of his people. The fact that they had this 12 baskets sitting there, one for each apostle, right? They had all gone back to the crowd and and gathered the leftovers, and each one of them came back with a basket full of leftovers, pointing to the fact that that God was going to continue to provide for his people in the future. Right, and then and they were all satisfied. Verse 17. They all ate and were satisfied. I think that there there is satisfaction from being fed by Christ. Right, that, that cannot be achieved through any other means. And yet until his return, we we continue to want more. Right? We continue to crave more. We enjoy the feast, not out of starvation but from this craving, um, craving what is found only in our final state, kind of craving this future hope that awaits. Marshall says this, the lesson of the present feeding is the ability of Jesus to satisfy the physical needs of the people and to go on doing so in the future. In the Lord's Supper, the stress is on spiritual food. John makes the link explicit by seeing in the feeding miracle a sign of the Lord's ability to provide spiritual food. John makes that very clear, that this is is preparing them for the Lord's Supper in an ongoing way to remind us that God is continuing to provide for our greatest spiritual needs, um, as well as our physical needs. So Luke's language would have reminded the original reader, right? Think about when this, this was written and distributed, you know, for the church to, to read. It's written to Theophilus, but, but given to anyone who was in that position of wanting to strengthen their assurance of Christ and his, his redemption of his church. 
that the, the, uh, they would have received that they would have been reading this passage and immediately associated the language there of him breaking the bread and, and giving that to his disciples to then distribute. They would have seen a parallel there with the Lord's Supper, with their own participation and in, in, uh, their regular participation in the Lord's Supper. So Luke's language reminds them of that. And the strength we need to participate in God's kingdom purposes is continually being provided. We're, continually, we're reminded of that weekly here at this church. So then and now, Jesus Christ remains sufficient to supply all of our needs and to satisfy all of our cravings. So in conclusion, Marshall says this, nothing is said about the reaction of the crowd to what had happened. For the simple for the synoptic tradition, the emphasis is not on the miracle, which is not described. You don't, we don't know exactly when that miracle takes place. Was it happening in his hands? Was it happening as they were distributing it, that like a, another loaf was appearing in an ongoing way? We're not, those, that, that will be a mystery until we, until we can ask him ourselves. So the, the miracle doesn't seem to be the focus, Marshall says, um, but it's on the results. And the audience is not the crowd, but the disciples. The lesson is one for disciples to answer the question, who then is Jesus? So although the disciples were willing to witness for Christ, they'd already gone out and done that at the beginning of this chapter, were they able to trust all he could, he could accomplish through them? Were they resting in him? Were they trusting in him to do that work through them? and to do a work beyond their own abilities, right? Did they comprehend how willing and ready Christ was to show compassion to the lost and helpless? And I think these are the same questions we need to ask ourselves, right? Could the answers to these questions provided by this text motivate our own participation in God's kingdom purposes? Jesus' miraculous provision confirms his readiness and sufficiency to bring God's mercy to a needy people. And it's an invitation for us to have that same kind of compassion, to have that same kind of desire to find those in need and to help them. And so the, the principle addresses the church's focus on evangelism as well as compassion, right? both inside and outside the church. The crowd was a mixture of everyone. And those who had truly become Christ's disciples and those who were simply considering who Jesus was. Wilcox says this, with regard to the world, we try to impress it with our success or our social importance when our great concern should be to evangelize it. Within the church, we strive for bureaucratic efficiency and economic security when our real aim should be its growth and its into spiritual maturity. So when we operate in the strength that Christ provides and trust in his ongoing interest to show compassion, we will never lack the ability to participate in his kingdom purposes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.